WWVU-FM, Morgantown. You took the first step and quit smoking, but even former smokers may still be at risk for lung cancer. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know about a new low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early. It takes only 60 seconds and could save your life. You took the first step, now take the next. Visit SaveByTheScan.org for a simple quiz to see if you're eligible and talk to your doctor about screening. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. You don't have to be in your car to listen to U92. You can listen online anytime by going to www.u92themoose.com and clicking Listen Now. The Moose is also on TuneIn, Radio FX, and the Alexa app. Tune in anywhere, anytime, U92. Hey, everyone. Uh, this is the U92 News staff. Uh, we're going to be doing a special show for you tonight. It's just going to be looking at the state of the foster care system in West Virginia. This is uh, Tobias Sherman, joined here by Claudia DeLima and Kylie... Tuttle. Tuttle. <laughs> Sorry about that, Kylie. But, yeah, so, um, yeah, we'll just start off with some general stats about the West Virginia foster care system. So, uh, we have the highest rate of children entering the foster care system in the United States. Um, the number of uh, children in foster care as of September 30th, 2021, was 7,152. Um, but to contrast that, there were only around uh, 4,500 homes available for foster care children. So there's quite a difference between the number of kids that need homes versus uh, the number of homes that are available out there. Um, the median time in care in West Virginia, like time in foster care, is 14 and a half months. Um, so yeah, those are just a couple of facts. So while you were doing your research, uh, Claudia, we'll start with you. What, was, what were some things that stuck out to you about the foster care system here? One of the main things that really stuck out to me definitely is the fact that so many kids in West Virginia get sent to out-of-state facilities consistently because they don't have enough uh, facilities in West Virginia itself. So these kids get sent to these really far away facilities in like Alabama and Arkansas, sometimes even Illinois to either foster families that are out there that are willing to take these kids or family that they have out there. And then these kids can't be monitored while they're so far away from their homes and there's not really any way to help them. And they end up in really dangerous situations because of that. And I talked to an ex-DHHR employee. She worked there in, I believe it was the early 2000s. Her name was Kristen Frace. And I have a pretty good quote from her for an interview that I did about sending those kids out of state. All right. Well, we'll see if we can pull that up. At least on the youth service side, we don't have a lot of facilities um, in West Virginia. So sometimes our kids would have to go out of state and sometimes it would be, you know, five, six, seven hours away. But that was hard, you know, not having a lot of resources here in our state and having to send the kids out of state, which is an additional expense. And then just having them be so far from home, that was tough too. Yes, yeah, so, you know, basically she just is talking about how tough it was to watch these kids go so far away. Um, she talked a lot about having pretty deep connections with a lot of the children that got sent away, and it was like they would go out of state, and then she wouldn't really ever know what happened to them because she had no way to keep in contact with them and look after them after they had gone out of state. 
Yeah, and I know that there have been allegations that um, these facilities are often abusive uh, situations for children. There's a higher risk of being assaulted at those facilities. Did she talk uh, at all about that? No, because once they got out of state, it was like they had absolutely no way of contacting them. And it's not necessarily in their job description to do so. Like they don't have, um, I guess, the rights to actually look after these kids once they're out of that unless they come back in state. Sure, so sure. they had really no way of actually looking after these kids once they had gone out. And of course that was in the early 2000s, so I don't actually know if it's changed since then, but given the context of a lot of the other stuff with the DHHR, there's probably a decent chance that they, they it's the same now. Okay, and who did you talk? Did you have something to add there? Yeah, I was gonna say, I know in 2021 they had about uh, 26 runaways from foster care homes and about 19 of them were from out of state so wow yeah yeah there was a there was a significant amount of children that ran away from foster care in 2022 um, oftentimes uh, these kids were found living outdoors um, living in empty houses trailers things like that um, there were still a pretty high amount of children that were unaccounted for um and the majority of the runaway children were living in shelters or residential care at the time. And there were even a couple of children that disclosed that they were involved with sex trafficking while they ran away. Um, so what else uh, in your interview, um, what else did you gain from that? Like what were some other significant moments uh, from that? Um, Kristen talked a lot about success stories with her uh, the kids that she had under her wing. Um, I think she said that she had about 60 or 70 kids that she was looking after at any given time, and that goes for three counties in the Eastern Panhandle, Jefferson, Morgan, and Berkeley, which is a lot. Um, it's crazy that there's not enough facilities and there's not enough DHHR offices and locations that can really take more time to focus on individual kids. Instead, it's one person looking after 60 or 70 children. And then again, this was 20 years ago, and we can only assume it's gotten worse from there. Um, and she talked a lot about how these kids that she would get really close to, some of them would end up getting out of the system and living really successful lives, and they were able to go to college and get successful jobs and really move on from a lot of the trauma that they faced when they were in the foster care system. <coughs> and there were a lot of kids that also didn't have that happen. Um, I have a quote from her about kids getting out of the system. You want to play that? Sure, yeah. yeah. I had some kids on my caseload that were successful and they would actually um, be independent after they went out of the foster care system. And so I had some that actually went to college. I had some that went out on their own and got a job. And so they would call me and let me know that they were how they were doing. And that was like that was a breath of fresh air because a lot of times, you know, the kids would come back and we would put them back in their environment and sometimes it wouldn't work out. So they would have to be placed again. So I definitely think, you know, the success stories definitely stand out to me in my time at DHHR. And it just meant a lot to me for those kids to contact me, you know, years after they were on my caseload to let me know that they were actually being successful and, you know, in college or holding down a job. So that definitely was a, a rewarding part of it. Yeah, so basically, you know, obviously the bad things stick out in any situation more so than the, than the good parts, but there are good parts. Um, 
and there are success stories when it comes to kids who have gone through really tough times in the foster care system, which is definitely important to acknowledge. Yeah, and I think while we're on that subject, um, the person that I talked to was Rachel Kinder, and she is the Frameworks Director at Mission West Virginia. And they basically just uh, help assist families with the first steps getting into foster care and adoption. So they aren't a child placing agency, but they help bring families in and then equip them with information to become certified and choose a good child placing agency. And they are contracted with the DHHR, and so they refer to all child placing agencies uh, impartially. But like you were talking about, um, you know, they have a program under, this isn't specifically Frameworks, but under Mission West Virginia, they have what's called the Bridge Program, which is basically a mentoring program for youth uh, age, like, I think it's ninth to 12th grade primarily. Um, they serve several hundred students in West Virginia, and they just ensure that, you know, they have good opportunities, um, that they're, once they leave the foster care system, that they're prepared to move on in life. And I also have a little clip that I'll play here. I think Rachel does a very good job of explaining what they do. And that is the educational advocacy program that I mentioned. Um, and they're working with kids in high school who are in foster care or adopted or um, considered homeless. These are kids who are couch surfing, staying with friends and relatives. Um, and our goal for those kids is that they attend school um, and complete their courses and graduate um, and then either go on to they go on to some type of post-secondary education whether it's um, a plan so they need a plan whether it's college the military job corps employment um, we are ensuring that these kids one we have kids that would not graduate high school if not for the bridge and then two um, 99 to 100 percent of our kids are going on to some type of post high school plan a lot of these are first generation college students um, so um, we're, we're really proud of that program. You know, I think that's, uh, it's very significant, you know, 99 to 100% of kids uh, having that post-high uh, school plan because we know that, you know, kids who age out of the foster care system, um, they're at a higher rate to end up experiencing homelessness or end up in some type of uh, criminality. So it's really good that we have these programs in place to uh, – to get these kids on a on a good path, I think you also, Claudia. I think you also talked to uh, about the about aging out of the foster care system. Right. Yeah, um, Kristen had also talked about how many kids just end up going right into the adult system once they age out of the foster care system because, uh, like what you had mentioned a little bit too, like the you have an option to go back into a system that will help you figure things out. But a lot of times these kids just have so much trauma and problems from what they went through in the foster care system that they don't want to use that. They just want to get out and figure it out for themselves, which often leads to them getting put in adult systems like prison and um, addicted to drugs and stuff like that because they haven't learned healthy habits or just like guidance of being an adult. Um, so I do have a little clip from Kristen about talking or talking about those kids that get stuck in adult systems. I think some of them actually, unfortunately, ended up like in the adult system. So they went to prison, um, either state or federal. Um, and then some of them, I think, just were able to move on, like were able to figure it out and and apply the skills that they had learned at residential treatment and and figure it out. Yeah, and uh, Kylie, I know that you talked to someone who was a caretaker, I believe, in the foster care system. So. Yeah. Um, could you talk about some issues that uh, they had identified with the system? I know that a lot of these issues with uh, not being able to provide proper care for children just stem from 
a lack of staff, a lack of funding. Could you just talk about some things like that? Yeah, so um, I know I talked to um, Olivia. She's a caretaker. She's fostered eight children in total, and she's adopted four of those eight children. And a problem she noted is the lack of support from the system, um, financially, emotionally, medically, things like that. And then also she also did touch on uh, the lack of employment and how these CPS workers are going into these homes and a lot of them don't have the protection they should have when walking into these situations. Did you have and a... I think, oh. I, yeah, I think I do have a clip. Um, the first one should be the first clip. All right. I'll pull that up here. They have a very dangerous job and they are so severely underpaid. There's not enough staff working. They really, really need more people and they need good people not people that go in there just for a paycheck they need people that will go in there and you know want to do the job did you want me to play the other clip as well or yeah the support from the system you can also play that one and i'll touch on both okay anything that was supportive that was given to the kids after i after i got them in my custody uh, it was, it was me. Um, they all needed to go to therapy. Um, two of them, when I got them, they were very, very sick. And thankfully, thankfully we have medical care, um, through the Medicaid system. And, um, because one of the little boys that I actually ended up adopting. It took about six months of um, antibiotics, steroids. Um, he was on a nebulizer for a while to actually get rid of the respiratory illness that he came with from his biological home. Yeah, so like she said in the first clip, um, this goes for both uh, CPS workers and um, those who are fostering children, they really need more people in general. And it also stems from some people not in it for the right reasons. And that's where a lot of problems stem from, from children being in abusive foster care homes and just CPS workers not being able to do what they need to do with the resources they have. And another part that goes into not having enough, like, foster homes is that these foster parents aren't getting enough support. It's really expensive to care for children on a whim because a lot of these are emergency situations and they just get called up and sent to a home and the parents have to, the foster parents have to provide for the children immediately. Yeah. And I think that ties into another uh, interesting point about the foster care system which is that a lot of this is due to uh, generational poverty in West Virginia. Um, so in 2019, uh, there were around 70,000 uh, juveniles in West Virginia, or so around one-fifth of children that were living below the poverty line. And nationally, the child poverty rate is about 17%, so we, w we were a bit higher uh, on that end. Um, there were around 123,000 children here uh, whose parents lack secure employment. So that's around one-third of all children in the state that had parents that didn't have secure employment. 
Um, and it gets even higher, child poverty rates for other racial groups like uh, black children in the state, um, American Indian or Latino children in the state. We're also ranked uh, 46th in economic well-being um, by the Annie E. Casey Foundation in 2019. And we do also have one of the lowest median income, median household incomes in the entire United States. So I think that definitely ties into a lot of um, these fundamental issues with the foster care system where parents just aren't quite prepared for that uh, financial burden that they have. Um, Claudia, did you touch on uh, any of that when you were doing the interview? Or? Yeah, I mean, um, one thing that definitely ties into this too is that it's hard for these foster families that don't have enough money to foster teens. And that is also because oftentimes these kids have gone through a lot of stuff and you have no idea what they've gone through when you're fostering them. You know, you have no idea what happened to them in their childhood, in their early teenage years, and whatnot. But it also means that you don't have enough money to support somebody that's going to need more money. You know, teenagers are going to be eating more. You're going to be worrying about teaching them how to drive, depending on how long you have them. That's costing money. Um, cell phones, you know, what they do in high school, they're going to be wanting to go out more. It costs more money to raise a teen. And there's not enough foster families that want to take in teens, and it's in part because of this reason, um, as well as it's a lot easier to care for younger kids. And I did talk to Kristen a little bit about that. I have a clip where she talks about how there's not many foster homes for teenagers. Yeah, just real quick before we play that clip, um, for the first quarter of this year, uh, there were around 1,400 certified foster homes in West Virginia, and only a quarter of those homes reported a willingness to accept uh, teenagers, so anyone age 13 and older. So not a high percentage there. Having more workers, I know it's hard to find. Like, I know that there's shortages, but I feel like, you know, if, if you had more workers and the caseloads were less, I feel like they would be able to spend a lot more time on, um, on being successful with that reunification and being successful with having the kids back in the home. I feel like there would be more time and more resources if we had um, some more workers, but I, I know that's tough. It uh, looks like that was a little bit of a wrong clip playing there, but that does uh, make an excellent point otherwise that foster families do need more workers. Um, I had some technical difficulties before the show, so I think I might have accidentally mixed them up, and I'm not sure where that clip went. But point being, there is not enough foster homes for teenagers in West Virginia. Did you have any thoughts on that, Kylie? Um, I know you talked to, like you said, someone who worked in this system. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? I mean, yes, um, she had a former foster child and she actually brought up a case against DHHR because of they were trying to send that child back to um, their biological home where it was proven that their guardian at the time was abusing them and like sexually abusing them. And just because they didn't have like the resources or enough foster families to properly bring in that child, they had to send that child back to that home. But in the end, thankfully, they didn't go back. The She won the case and got the child. That's good. That's good. Um, yeah, I think an interesting solution, or maybe not like a full-blown solution, but something that can help with this is the idea of fictive <coughs> kin, which um, there's a pretty high percentage of kids in this state that end up uh, being fostered by someone they're related to. But other people can also make good foster parents, for example, like teachers. So, you know, teachers, they have a vast experience with children. Um, 
you know, their schedules can often align well with what a, a child needs. Um, and they often take in students that they already have a prior relationship with. So I talked to Rachel Kinder about that. And uh, yeah, so I'll play a little clip from her on that. One of the things I'm really proud about about our state is that um, over half of our kids are placed with either relative or kinship care or effective kin placements. Um, and, you know, law says we need to place with family when they're available and appropriate. Um, but then you can also take it a step further and define fictive kin as, you know, someone with a prior relationship to the child that may not be a blood or legal relationship. Um, and teachers are a huge one. We've known teachers, we've known principals, um, where often they might even be the first person aware that there are struggles at home. Um, so they're there from the beginning when a child enters foster care, um, and often they do step up. Um, I had a friend that took in two very young kids. Um, she was a preschool teacher, and they needed out-of-home care. I think uh, that's really crucial as well because, you know, we also know that uh, being enrolled in the foster care system is a significant risk factor for uh, being suspended from school. So roughly one in four uh, students um, that are in the foster care system that are also enrolled in public schools in West Virginia were suspended uh, during school last year due to disciplinary issues. And that's higher than the average of non-foster uh, care students. And uh, your risk factor is increased if you are a black student who is also in the foster care system. So yeah, um, it's really good when you see teachers that can step up and uh, take in these children uh, and they know th the disciplinary issues that they are facing in school as well. Um, so yeah, uh, do you have something to say? Oh no, um, I work at a daycare and as a teacher, it's you see students struggling, you see these children struggling and I think that it's really important that they have that they have that support at school when they don't have it at home. So teachers being able to provide that support and even if the child has um, issues that the school is there to support them no matter what. Oh, yeah. Did you have uh, anything to add on that? Buddy? Yeah, actually, could you elaborate a little bit more on the fictive kin and kinship and stuff like that? I'm a little curious about that. Oh, yeah. Fictive kin is basically just the idea that you can have someone who is not uh, directly related to you by blood that can basically be considered as someone uh, related to you. So, like, they give priority to family members um, in the state of... Most states really give priority to family members when it comes to fostering children. But if you have a long-standing relationship with someone, you've proven that you know how to care for them and you understand their needs, you can be seen as fictive kin, which just means that, like I said, you're not blood related, but you can take care of them as if you were. Okay, I gotcha. Yeah, I was just a little curious about that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, there's also uh, the Modify program, which is, again, something similar sort of to the Bridge program, which is provides support to uh, children remaining in foster care until they turn 18. You know, this could be education, training, financial assistance, and then those uh, crucial transitioning services, so transitioning out of the foster care system. And if you're between the ages of 18 and uh, 26, you know, you can um, receive help to acquire self-sufficiency. Um, just, again, like the bridge program, you can uh, establish yourself and get a better start once you exit the foster care system. So they have... Um, educational and training vouchers for 
uh, kids that are leaving the foster care system once they turn 18 or older. Um, they can be used to cover expenses, anything related to post-secondary education or vocational training. You know, you can do tuition, books, housing, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I think that's a really interesting program. Um, do you have any anything else, like any programs that uh, you heard about when you were when you were talking? Yeah, uh, Kristen had talked a little bit about the Modify program and such, which I had kind of mentioned before, just how um, a lot of kids don't actually want to utilize that, um, which is why so many kids end up going into adult systems like prison and um, other things like that because they just aren't interested in learning more about that because of what they've already gone through. Um, so it definitely is a, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing for, for kids who want to use it, and I think it should be pushed more for those kids that have had really hard problems to try and help them lead better lives than they would otherwise without it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think part of that is also, um, you know, it depends on uh, the people that you have around you. You know, having a good support system is really crucial at that. Um, I talked to Rachel about this as well, and uh, she talked a little bit about the families that she really likes to see when they're uh, fostering children. I love the foster and adoptive parents that just don't give up on the kids. Um, sometimes families feel that, you know, this kid's in DHHR custody, so if it gets too tough, you know, I can have them move from my home or I can say I can't do this anymore. Um, but these kids are looking for someone to stay in there for the long haul, and they're testers, so they're going to make sure that you want to stick with them. So the first thing, you know, that they do is – kind of test that parent's love for them and see, like, are you the person who's going to stick around? And my favorite families are the ones who they, they don't give up on kids no matter what. Even if the kid has to leave their home for treatment, they're there when the kid comes back. Um, even after the kids, you know, turn 18, and even if there have been times the relationship has not been good, they're still that kid's family no matter what. Yeah. Um, you know, oftentimes, too, um, these children will end up in these situations because they have parents who their parental rights were terminated. Did either of you uh, do any research or talk to anyone that mentioned uh, like the termination of parental rights in the state? Not really. Um, Kristen didn't work with CPS. She was, um, unfortunately, I've forgotten her actual title, but it is, it was more so working with older kids that had problems in the home, but not necessarily child protective services stuff. So she didn't really have too much information about that sort of thing in general. I know when I talked to Olivia, um, she didn't really give specifics. She kind of gives specifics, but all four of her adoptive children, the parental rights were like terminated like way before they were able to be adopted. Yeah, I do know that West Virginia terminates parental rights faster and more frequently than any other state uh, in the country with around one in 50 children losing both of their parents' uh, rights between 2015 and 2019. Um, you know, it takes an average of around 11 months for uh, that termination of parental rights, where I believe the national average is around one and a half years. So it's significantly quicker here in West Virginia. And that was really um, spurred by the 1997 Adoption and Safe Families Act, which is they wanted to speed up the adoption process, prevent children from being in foster care for too long. But it really has created a pretty rigid timeline um, for uh for the termination of parental rights so yeah um did you have uh anything else to say on that no yeah. i think we're about ready to take a little break for a couple minutes if uh <laughs> if everybody's cool i think with that. i think it is about <laughs> that time yes yep
Patrick, watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Hey y'all, how's moving going? Finally unpacked. Now just gotta deal with all these cardboard boxes. I wish I knew what to do with them. Oh, cardboard? No problem. The WVU Office of Sustainability offers tons of recycling opportunities on campus, including student move-in cardboard recycling. Oh, that's cool. Where should I take all my boxes? Just collect everything and take it downstairs. Workers from the Office of Sustainability are ready to collect your broken down boxes on the street level of every dorm on campus. Great. Glad to hear that these just won't be thrown in the trash. But will they still be at the dorms later in the semester to take any other stuff I want to recycle? Yeah. Outside of move-in initiatives, the Office of Sustainability has recycling programs all over campus. Just look for the blue recycling bins, typically next to all trash cans on campus. They'll try to have a recycling bin within a few feet of every trash can, and they'll have a list of what's recyclable and what's not, just in case you aren't sure. I need to tell more people about this. It's a real shame that more people don't recycle, with it being so easy. Honestly, and if you ever have any items like electronics you'd like to get rid of, check out at Let's Conserve WVU on Instagram and Twitter to learn about the Office of Sustainability's e-cycling days and specialized recycling events. Oh, cool. I'll follow them now. In the meantime, I'm going to go haul all these boxes downstairs. Thanks again. Yep. Thank you for doing your part, and good luck with your semester. For more information, visit sustainability.wvu.edu. And remember... Blue and gold makes green to keep our campus clean. This message was brought to you by the students of Multimedia Writing at West Virginia University. All right, we are back here. The news staff for U93, the news. And I think uh, Kylie here wants to talk a little bit about, you know, some of the positives of the hospital system. Um, you had mentioned uh, they're trying to keep... Um, relatives together, keeping siblings together. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so when I spoke to Olivia, uh, three out of four of her uh, now adoptive children are related biologically. And it was really interesting because she originally only had the three boys and then uh, two of the boys, their biological father had another child with another woman. And when that woman lost her parental rights... Um, Olivia was their primary choice um, for the baby girl, and she only had clearance for three foster children at the time, but since they wanted to keep the biological siblings together, they made a special clearance for her to take the baby as well. And then also at my daycare, there's a case. Um, we have a little girl, and when she moved foster homes, they also moved her with her uh, older brother, so that they stay together. And I think that's very important. I personally have a very close relationship with my siblings. And I think especially in that situation, you need that support from those you're close to and comfortable with. Did you talk to her at all? Um, I know some people are hesitant uh, to adopt children who already have biological children just because they feel like it might strain the relationship between their kids and the adopted kids. Did you talk to her at all about that? I'm sorry. Can you repeat that question? Oh. I got just um, 
Like some families who have biological children of their own sometimes worry about adopting children who are not their biological kids that may cause like a kind of rift in that relationship, right? Will you talk to her at all about that? Like the biological kids versus adoptive kids, how that dynamic works? No, not really. Um, Cause she's only ever fostered and adopted. So we didn't really touch on that. Was there anything else that you had touched on that you wanted to mention? I don't know. I feel like this is more of a closing thing, but she did talk about how overall the, she thinks the system is doing as the best it, it can. And I'm not sure if it, this is in the clip or not, but she did mention that um, she's in southern West Virginia, and all but one county that she worked with was very good with communicating with both her and the children and um, what was happening and what was going on. You really have to look at the system as a whole. And, you know, should there be changes in the system? I think there should be. There definitely should be more workers. They definitely need more protection for their workers, especially the ones that go into the homes that are actively investigating. Yeah, so um, I thought I made that clip longer, but uh, basically she said that her overall, she only had one really not so great experience, but overall um, working with the workers and the children, it was overall a very productive situation. Yeah. Well, and there have been some bills introduced uh, recently to kind of address these issues. Um, Senate Bill 273 was focused on uh, allocating child protective workers based on population size of certain counties. Um, you know, there's House Bill uh, 3061, which strengthens the authority of the foster care ombudsman to investigate crimes against uh, foster children. Um, I, I believe the foster care ombudsman was created when the DHHR was split into three separate branches, which was a result of um, some lawsuits that were brought against him, just alleging uh, abuse and neglect and um, other issues within the system that they felt could be better handled with a more uh, divided system of the DHHR. Um, there's also uh, House Bill 2538, which uh, required the Bureau of Social Services to develop a child welfare information technology system, which is really important too because uh, there is a lack of data on many children in the foster care system. A lot of kids slip through the cracks and um, yeah, so it's, it's definitely good to address that issue. Um, Carly, do you have anything that you wanted to bring up kind of related to uh, these issues, any of these proposals maybe? Um, as Kristen had talked about, uh, having more workers is definitely a good thing. Um, as I had pre previously mentioned as well, she had 60 or 70 kids on her caseload between three counties, and um, I believe she said that she only had about 10 coworkers that were also doing that. So West Virginia is a relatively low-populated state, but that's still a lot of kids per person for every person to have that's currently working in the DHHR. So definitely having more workers is going to make a massive difference on how kids are treated and what what systems they're able to get into and where they go when they get out of the system as well. Because you can devote a lot more time to individual kids and really get to know them and have an emotional connection with these kids to be able to help them, is, which is what they need. You know, So many of them are in really awful situations and they have no adult or 
authority figure in their lives that can help them get out of that system. So having more workers will definitely improve that greatly. You have a clip that, do you want me to play that one? I think that was the one that already played. I think, are you sure I think I'm, I can try to play. Having that. more workers, I know it's hard to find. Like, and that is okay. You don't have to put it. Oops, guys. But yeah, no, there are definitely some interesting policy proposals out there. Um, you know, there's one article talking about just the need for more uh, paid family and medical leave just to reduce that strain on families. Um, you know, I know you're you're pretty passionate about that, right, Sonia, about, you know, providing, uh, enhancing benefits for uh, paid leave for workers. Yeah, there's a lot of state employees in West Virginia have little to no leave for any situation that happens. And that could be bereavement for loss of a family member. It can be sickness. You find out you have cancer. You don't have enough paid sick leave. Um, there's even a system in place. Um, I know this because my mom works for the school system where you can donate your own sick leave to another person that needs it, which is pretty nuts. You know, you, you should be able to have more benefits and more leave to take care of your family because your job shouldn't be your number one priority at all points. It should be your family and whatever else you have in your life. And your job is definitely important, but you should be able to take enough leave that you need in order to process things, in order to heal from things, whatnot. And we don't have that in West Virginia at all. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's also the child tax credit, which has been shown to be extremely beneficial uh, for families with children. Um, under the American Rescue Plan, uh, the federal government increased the child tax credit from $1,400 to $3,600 for children under six and $3,000 for older children. But I believe that was temporary. I'm not sure uh, what has been changed since then. But, you know, that can drastically reduce child poverty, as we already talked about earlier. Um, child poverty is higher here in West Virginia than the national average. So that would really benefit a significant amount of kids. Um, I believe the, the poorest 20% of families nationwide with children would receive six times more support than they did previous to the like the pre-pandemic uh, child tax credit. So that would be really interesting. And then also just generally supporting the social safety net, which is something that in West Virginia there's not too much support for, but that could just help uh, reduce the number of kids entering the foster care system to begin with. Like we mentioned earlier, we have the highest number of children per capita entering the foster care system. And so just preventing that number from growing so high in the first place could be really beneficial. So, you know, just uh, strengthening programs like TANF or WIC or SNAP, increasing benefits for people who really need them. Um, you know, also harm reduction programs. We talked about this in our last show a lot. Um, just allowing people to not end up in the situations where they may not be capable of taking care of their children. So. Did you have any thoughts on that? On that? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a bigger picture thing, too. Like what you mentioned with um, SNAP and such, you know, if families don't have enough money, they can't support kids that are in the foster system, the foster care system. Um, and things like SNAP, you know, they're constantly up for debate. I think it's every four years the Farm Bill, the farm bill gets um, debated and renewed under different guises and rules and such. And you have to make sure that people have the support that they need in order to take care of these kids. It's not, having more workers would definitely help, but we need to have, we need to have more systems in place that can help these families actually take care of these children. Um, just point blank, like full stop, the end. You know, there's not enough of that and there needs to be more. Um, and more workers would certainly help, but the government also needs to step in when it comes to 
other systems. I'm rambling now, but you know, we need we need more systems in place to help these kids that need it. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I have a clip here uh, related to that a little bit, just on the lack of foster homes in West Virginia from Rachel Tinder here. There's never enough homes, no matter if we're in what the media calls a foster care crisis at the time or not. It's a good catchphrase, but um, so it's it's a big ask. When we talk about being a nonprofit, we're not asking someone to write a check or donate a coat or some canned goods. We're asking them to kind of turn their life upside down, open their home, open their lives up um, to these kids. Um, and there's you don't know the outcome. You don't know if these Kids will reunify with their parents, which is the hope of every case. You don't know if they become adoption eligible. So it's a really big ask for families. Yeah, and we've all touched on this. I mean, it's definitely a big ask. Um, I know, Kylie, you had talked about that as well. It's a lot for families to take on. Um, do you have anything you want to say about that? Just, you know, how much of a burden it can be for some families? Yeah, I mean, um, when I spoke to Olivia, like I said earlier, um, she was the primary choice to place the baby in, and it was a emergency situation. So she had to grapple with a newborn at the time, trying to provide for that newborn, which is a lot more tedious than dealing with like toddlers and um, other like other age children. Yeah, yeah, you know something else. Um Another interesting idea that has also been shown to be pretty beneficial is uh, juvenile drug courts. So that is basically just an alternative to taking kids out of the home and them ending up in the criminal justice system. So, you know, it reduces the number of kids that end up in correctional facilities. Um, I think around 15% of ju juvenile drug court graduates commit another offense compared to around 55% in traditional probation programs. So... And these, they're, the courts are also cost-effective, so about an average cost of $3,500 per participant compared to around $100,000 for residential placement. But, of course, there's not equal access to this in West Virginia. Um, a lot of kids don't have access to juvenile drug courts. A lot of kids and families don't really even know about uh, juvenile drug courts. So I think that is something we've definitely got to, you know, increase awareness about in the state. Um, were there any other issues that, uh, Claudia, that you thought – could use some increased awareness around West Virginia, maybe? Um, I definitely think that social workers need better pay just across the board. Um, a lot of them really do not make that much money. Even if you have just graduated college and you go into the social work field, you're not making a crazy amount of money, and you're doing a lot of work. I cannot even imagine the psychological toll it would have to care for 60 to 70 kids on a regular basis, and you have to go to court for them, you have to care for them. You have to make sure that they're in safe situations. You have to be able to connect them to therapy or other systems and institutions that are in place for these kids that have problems. And you're not getting paid enough to do it. You can hardly take care of yourself while you're doing it. And I have a, I do have a clip from Kristen on that as well. Um, it, you know, I think that most jobs need better pay in general. But I think especially people who care for kids like teachers or social workers really deserve better pay more than anybody else. And the pay for DHHR is not, you know, it's not very good. I mean, I, I hate saying that, but it's just not like the salary is not, is not great. And so, you know, a lot of times, like, you know, the CPS workers go into dangerous situations. So 
Um, I just feel like, you know, if there was more money and it's, I mean, probably across the country too, you know, I just feel like if there was more money um, to support the workers, uh, it would probably be, be a little bit better. Yeah. I mean, especially going off of what Kristen, Kristen said too, is if you pay better, you're going to have more workers, more people are going to be interested in going into that field. And there are a lot of people out there that want to help other people that love children but these jobs are not appealing anymore because you can't support yourself. You're not going to be able to really live a fulfilling life financially with the salaries that these jobs have. And to increase their pay would most certainly pull in more workers and more people that are passionate about caring for kids and helping them. Yeah. Yeah, it does seem like um, there are a lot of programs uh, in West Virginia that have been shown to work in the past, but they just don't receive uh, the funding that they need. And we know that you know, like you mentioned, um, a lot of these workers would be better suited to uh, serve the people that they're designed to serve if they had more pay, you know. Um, there's also, and like I mentioned with programs, um, you know, we have a pretty high rate of truancy here in West Virginia. Um, and where there was a program in the late 1990s that really reduced the number of truant children, which a lot of them ended up entering foster care, but the grants for that program ran out, unfortunately. Um, there's also uh, this thing called Project Homecoming, which was uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, just aimed to provide uh, services to kids at home to pre prevent them from going to out-of-state treatment facilities. Um, and again, that, you know, it was federally, uh, they got federal grant money, which ran out, unfortunately. So, you know, we, we have a lot of these programs that we know work, and then we just can't find the funding for them which is kind of interesting c considering we do have a ginormous budget surplus in the state of West Virginia. So I'm not sure exactly where the disconnect is when <laughs> it comes to the highest level of politicians in the state, uh, you know, where their priorities are, I guess I should say. But there are some, there are good things that we've, uh, we've been doing, like the Safe at Home program, for example, which has, um, you know, a, a good-sized budget, $32 million. Definitely sounds like a lot, probably could be a lot more. But that, again, is to reduce the number of children entering foster care, improve school attendance, so, you know, reduce truancy for uh, teenagers. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Had you heard either of y'all about any other uh, interesting programs, interesting ideas that you wanted to touch on at all? Or? No, I think uh, my main takeaway from this entire experience has been that it always boils down to money and it's never going to the right thing. Uh, I think this state really needs to focus more money on social welfare programs, and we don't in any capacity, which is sad, in all honesty. Yeah, it comes down to building awareness for a certain situation and then trying to gather the funds for it. But a lot of times, um, and especially in government, like they're not willing to give up those funds. Yeah. Yeah, and you make a great point about uh, bringing awareness to these issues. You know, we're here at West Virginia University. Do you think there's enough awareness here? Do you think a lot of people um, understand the severity of the issues that the foster care system has here? No, no, not at all. Like, I didn't even know about the Modified program until you brought it up, and that's a program here on campus, which is insane. But it's, I mean, I wouldn't know nearly as much as I do about the foster care system if, um, my family weren't so close involved with um, these jobs. Like my mom's a teacher, my dad's a social worker. So I know a lot about the troubles that they go through as um, people who are in these situations and try to help these children. 
but other than like from what I hear from them like there's not a lot being talked about um with the foster care system here in the state what do you think uh do you have any thoughts on that Claudia yeah, I mean, there's definitely not a lot of information out there about the foster care system in West Virginia. Um, my brother just graduated, I think, two years ago from Shepherd University in West Virginia with a social work degree. And um, half the stuff that I feel like I know about on background is from him. And it's not something that I've ever seen anything about otherwise through the university, through any sort of news outlets in West Virginia, through the government itself with press releases and all that stuff. And um, I think it really would make a huge difference if there was more awareness, because I think the more awareness people have about certain topics, the more it's going to be brought up and the more funding could be potentially brought in for those things. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Um, doing research for the show, I, I had to dig pretty deep through some, you know, several hundred page PDFs to really find some good information for this. Um, it's definitely not super accessible. You know, I found uh, some fact sheets that had their sources listed. I really just had to go through that to actually find the information that I was truly looking for. Um, and that's also part of uh, what Mission West Virginia does, what Frameworks does, is just spreading that awareness to people. Um, you know, letting families know the options that they have uh, available to them uh, and letting people know that, you know, you don't have to live in some type of perfect home to adopt a child or foster a child. Um, and I think I have a quote here from Rachel about that. I'll play it right now. All types of families are great for kids. So not everyone has to be a nuclear family with a stay-at-home mom. We can work with um, families where both parents work outside of the home, divorced individuals, single, same-sex couples, um, families that are older, families that don't have kids. Um, there's really no set. And every family is right for the specific type of kid. Yeah, yeah, I think that is definitely well said. And there are ways even, uh, you know, anyone personally can help children in the foster care system. You can always mentor a teenager, which is crucial for kids, especially kids who are aging out of the foster care system. As we mentioned, uh, you know, they face higher risk, um, in various different aspects of life, you know, whether it be um, future criminality, whether it be substance abuse, any number of different things, poverty, homelessness. So, you know, uh, youth who do have those mentors, they're less likely to skip school, abuse drugs, and engage in other harmful behaviors to themselves. And they're more likely to participate in uh, activities, especially through their school, um, that lead them to succeed more academically, but also just personally, you know, with friendships. Um, you, know, you can also donate, anybody out there, donate supplies to, there's a lot of good organizations around West Virginia. You can donate clothes, personal hygiene. I know that's a huge issue um, is personal hygiene products, um, foster care kids not having access to them. Uh, Rachel, who I'd interviewed, talked to about oftentimes foster children will have just trash bags of their stuff and, you know, it could get stolen, it could rip, you know, things fall out they oftentimes, they show up to homes and they don't even have toothbrushes or any type of uh, other hygiene products like that. So it's really always good to donate those supplies. Um, yeah, just education, advocacy, you know, doing your part. So that's definitely interesting. And there are other programs too. Um, one thing I forgot to mention was the CAP program, which is actually pretty recent. I believe it was August, um, maybe a little bit earlier, that they introduced the CAP program. I'm blanking on what the exact, um, you know, the actual name for that is. But 
it's basically just a collaboration between Aetna Health, West Virginia, CVS, and it's to, you know, we have a pretty big shortage of child psychiatrists in West Virginia, another huge issue we have here, and a lot of children in foster care uh, face mental health issues, and so this is kind of trying to address um, the mental health crisis in terms of you know, connecting children who really need that mental health care with good uh, psychiatrists and practitioners. So, I don't know, do you guys have any thoughts on just generally, like, mental health in this state? I know being in college can be very stressful. I know you both have personal experiences with family working with people in foster care. Do you have any thoughts on just, um, like, the mental side of uh, being involved in foster care? Yeah, I mean, um, I think it is very stressful not only for the children, obviously, but for the workers. Because, um, as I said, caring for so many kids at one time, I really cannot think of how insane that would be to deal with um, mentally. To know that you have that many people that you have to take care of, and you might be falling short in some ways. And it's not necessarily your fault because you don't have the resources to take care of these kids. Um, and as what, what you can do as a listener is definitely check out the DHHR website and the resources page and look at what areas might need help. I mean, there's a DHHR office, um, usually in every county, I think, but sometimes they do stretch them across two to three counties um, and see what you can do to help, you know? And if, if it is just things like what Toby said, where you're donating toothbrushes and toothpaste and body wash for these kids, it's every little thing helps because I think that a lot of these children really need to know that people do care about them, even if they don't know them, because they are so often horribly neglected by the people that are supposed to be taking care of them. Do you have some? Yeah, I know. Touching on the mental health aspect, I know when uh, children are placed in like foster homes and temporary homes, mental health is often overlooked because they have to look towards like physical well-being and just basic necessities. That oftentimes, the wait to get mental health help, mental health help, is not as urgent as it should be. Yeah. Yeah. No. Definitely. And. You know, another big issue, um, this kind of ties into the mental health and also tying back to just having, like, <laughs> physical products in the foster care system is that, you know, we are a heavily white state. I think we're close to 90% white in West Virginia. And so there are not a lot of um, resources for black children in foster care, not a lot of uh, things available for them that just kind of affirm who they are and provide them with dignity and respect. And I did talk to Rachel a little bit about that on one of her projects called Affirmation Boxes. So one of my um, kind of side projects in the last couple of years was creating what I call Affirmation Boxes. And that started with a grant from West Virginia American Water. And we have um, four different boxes. Um, they vary because of age and gender, but basically they have um, black affirming dolls, crayons, coloring books, um, affirmation books, affirmation cards, um, hair and skincare products, hairbrushes. Um, we work with a lady who owns a black beauty supply shop in Huntington who's been really helpful in helping us identify products and ordering them. And those are pretty much available for me to mail to um, any child that's in foster care, has been adopted, um, or is in some type of out of home or relative care. And uh, those are um, really being distributed and used well. So I'm, I've been happy with that. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting idea because, you know, it, it helps in a couple ways. It helps support uh, small local businesses around West Virginia 
like the woman in Charleston who's providing them with those supplies. And it helps children who may feel out of place. They don't see familiar faces around them. They don't see people that they can turn and trust to. And having um, these resources available can really help them with that. And maybe that can even uh, reduce the number of kids that end up running away from foster care or feeling unsafe in a foster care environment. So, but uh, we are getting close to time here. Only got a couple of minutes left on the show. So was there anything that uh, we didn't cover, Claudia, that you wanted to go over right um, now? I think I covered just about everything that I had with uh, my interview with Kristen and the research that I did. Did you have anything? Mm-hmm. Co- I don't really have anything new to add. I think it would be important to just reiterate the importance of spreading awareness of these types of things and hopefully getting these social workers the resources that they need to continue to keep these children safe. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think another thing, one of the most important things that we talked about today was providing care for teenagers in the foster care system. I know we all kind of touched on that, but uh, a lot of families sort of have a misconception about fostering children and subsequently adopting children that they're going to get like a perfect little baby that they can raise up and be exactly who they want it to be. But that's just not the reality of the foster care system. And there are many thousands of children who are 13, 14, 15, you know, up to 17 years old that need good families. And even if you're just providing them uh, a home for a couple of years before they go off to some type of post-secondary education or enter the workforce, that can be really crucial in uh, providing them with care and support and skills necessary to actually succeed and not end up in a very dangerous situation. So I would definitely implore anybody out there who's ever considered fostering children or adopting children, just consider uh, taking in older kids as well. You know, don't limit yourself to kids who are, you know, uh, one to six years old, something like that. Um, and then, you know, again, um, definitely poverty is a, is a huge issue here. I think that'd be a pretty good place to end on is a lot of these issues are systemic and it's not like, I think they're all kind of connected. Like our previous show was on the opioid crisis, substance abuse issues in West Virginia. And these issues are, do not exist in a vacuum. It's not like, uh, people, being uh, addicted to substances, people being in extreme poverty, people committing higher rates of crime are all disconnected. They're all very much connected, and all of these can lead to dangerous situations for children, which ends up with them uh, being entered into the foster care system, as we've seen. So definitely also good to support causes that try to alleviate poverty, try to reduce uh, substance abuse in the state. So yeah, I mean, I think we're just about to finish up here. I've only got one minute left. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. Thank you everyone for tuning in. Uh, I just wanted to end off. This was U92. This was the new staff, our show on the foster care system. We'll have some more shows like this throughout the semester from a couple of different new staff, uh, team members here. So just keep tuning in. They'll all be at 7 PM, uh, spaced a couple of weeks apart. So, If you want to keep listening to some interesting information, tune back in here when you can.